Good morning, church. I, I just want to take an informal survey. How many of you are come from families with, um, your, where your parents, either your mother or father, are not believers? Not believers. Let me tell you, it, it was a joy and a, a miracle um, two weeks ago, like Hal mentioned, I got to baptize my dad at our home church, and CCCAC was a big part of that when we were here a couple years ago, and you know, to be on the prayer list of indelible grace, to continue to see that you guys are praying for my dad, my family, I want to say thanks for remembering him. Um, it was a huge part of his growth because we went on that family retreat, that family camp, and for him to come around, or for your church to come around him and love on him spoke volumes. He had ended up going to our home church family camp uh, last summer when Venus and I were not able to go. We were on vacation. But again, the church in the city uh, just loved on him and just continued to pour grace on him. And that was part of his testimony. He just said that the grace of God was something that really grabbed him and gripped him. And I want to pray for you. I want to just continue to, to encourage you as those of you, maybe your parents are not believers, that there is hope in the grace of God. There is hope in the promises of God. And today as we're going to look in the scriptures, there's hope in the prayer of Jesus, in the prayer of God. So I'm going to start off uh, not actually in the text. I'm going to start off the text because when we think of the Lord's Prayer, oftentimes we think of this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts or trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed or or, are debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Oftentimes that's referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, But it was actually a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And I want to kind of rename that and say that's the disciples' prayer. That's something when they asked Jesus, how do you want us to pray? Teach us. That's what he gave them. You can find that in Matthew 6 uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great prayer to memorize. It's a great prayer to hide in your heart and to pray often. But we've titled this passage this morning, The Lord's Prayer, The Other One. And this other one is very significant. So I'll invite you to open your bulletins to the the middle flap. Or if you've got a Bible, to John chapter 17. I'm going to be using the NIV translation. And just to set the stage, Jesus is praying this prayer at the end of the Lord's Supper at the end of what is the Passover meal, and he's praying five chapters into a recording. John has given us the keen insight from chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Five chapters worth of conversation, of dinner conversation, of what Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he ends it with this. So I will invite us to stand right now. As we hear this, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll pray. And then we'll look uh, a little bit deeper here. Actually, uh, I I should set the stage on on that flap. Thank you, Pastor Michael, for putting those three numbers in there. On the right side, I want you to be looking for three things as we're going through this passage, too, as I'm reading this to you. The first one is time and eternity. References to time, whether it's a before or after phrase. References to eternity. References to things that, that are in time or beyond time. I also want you to be looking, as we go through these 26 verses, for references to glory or glorify, those kinds of words. It'll just kind of clue you in as to what we'll be discussing. And, and the third one, oneness. With, the words like with or in me or, you know, being with. Okay, so those are the three things I want you to be looking for 
be like detectives as we're reading, okay? This is God's word from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 26. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Would you continue in prayer with me? Lord, we hear your words praying for us today. Holy Father, righteous Father, we ask you to Draw us into this prayer. 
Lord, would you reveal to us in the space of this time what eternal life looks like? Would you reveal to us in this time what glory in Jesus Christ is all about? And would you speak to us right now in this moment about what oneness is all about? Jesus, we thank you for your grace in this time. Holy Spirit, we ask for understanding to make this word alive in our hearts. In Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I encourage you to keep the scriptures right there in front of you. And if you're taking notes, I'll hope to, uh, to walk you through where we're going through these three points and then some. So did you hear it? Did you hear the references to time and eternity? Did you hear references to glory? Did you hear references to oneness? Oftentimes in this scripture, it's divided up by the editors as a three-section prayer. Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for all the other believers. But I want to take a different approach, and instead of looking at it in a linear way of saying, this is the section we're going to talk about, and then this is the section, and then end at the end, what I'd like to do is just kind of look at these as all ingredients of a mix, like a mixture or a... Um, you know, if you put ingredients together in a smoothie or, you know, in a cake, they all just have different spots, but they all come together. And Jesus makes reference to them over and over, not just in the beginning, but he comes back to these. And so what I want to do right now is, is start with time and eternity. And if you look at verse 1, Jesus says something very significant here. He starts out saying, the time has come. Father, the time has come. Now, in, in itself, right here, if you only read John chapter 17, you would maybe fly over that and not see that it's such a significant thing. But throughout the book of John, there are references and instances where Jesus is asked to do something from his mother at a wedding, like, turn this water into wine. And she, he says, it's not my time yet. He'll do it anyways, but it's not his time to reveal himself in full glory. He's teaching in synagogues and he's challenging Pharisees, religious leaders, and they try to seize him. But he's able to walk right through. He's not arrested at that time because, as John would write, the time was not ready yet. It was not his hour yet. Here in this prayer, Jesus, from his own lips, says, Father, the time has come. The time for what? The time to end this meal? To finish this Passover meal? Yeah, but there's something else that's about to happen. If you were one of the disciples sitting around this Passover meal and, and walking with him for three years, you might be hearing, the time has come for us to take over. The time has come for us to conquer. We've been oppressed for so long, it's our turn to have at it against those Romans. Because they were headed off to Jerusalem. Jesus has something completely different in mind. The time has come for me to do something none of you expect. And he was just, in a couple of chapters before here, explaining what that would be. The time has come for Jesus to give his own life. That's very significant. When we look at time in eternity, Jesus, in time, knows exactly the right time when this is going to happen. At the right moment in, in his ministry. Now, we're locked in time. We are people who are locked in time. There's a clock up there. Many of you are wearing watches. You set alarms on your cell phones. You have clocks on your, on your laptops. And, and you're locked in time. You, you've got to be on time. Or if you're chronically late, people know it. You know? And we're, we're locked in dates and seasons. We're calendar people. 
There are uh, deadlines we need to make. We're locked in time. But God is beyond time. We, we look at passages like verse 4. If you can just go there right now. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. In verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. We see Jesus relating to his Father right here in a way that should probably strike us as odd. Jesus, didn't he start in Bethlehem? Didn't he start at Christmas? Didn't he begin there? When Santa comes out and all the mistletoe and the green comes out in, in December, isn't that when Jesus starts? No. Jesus was born into earth, but he was in heaven with the Father before the creation of the world. The nature of God is very important to catch here, that he, though he is in time, he's also from eternity. Jesus Christ, before the world began, shares the glory with God. Echoing that in verse 24, again, jumping ahead, Jesus prays in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus repeats this and he tells them, I'm not part of this time-space continuum. The time has come to explode your view of time. Now, time worries us. We think of these 70 years, give or take, you know, however long we, we are given in, in this world, but average at about 70 or so. And we think, what am I going to do with my life? Carpe diem, seize the day. When will I retire? Do I have time to do things before then or do things after then? And time is such a, a big deal. It causes us to worry. It causes us to, to be anxious But when we have a view of God who is outside of eternity, it should minimize our worries in such a way that we realize if we're part of Jesus, if we're in his family, we can't worry the same way as our neighbors who live apart from Jesus. We have to view time in a totally different way. He's brought us into this eternal life. And I want you to turn back to verse 3. Because Jesus gives us a definition here of eternal life that may be uh, a little bit different from what you've, you've seen before. Verse 3. Now this is eternal life, colon. Now in the Greek, there was no colon. But in our English translations, whenever you see a colon in the book of John, you can bank on it. This is a, a, an objective statement, a definition. He does this in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Just look for those colons. They're a lot of fun to, to just get some really good Q&A. Jesus gives us this definition of eternal life that you can hang your hat on. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Knowing Jesus, knowing the one who sent Jesus, that's eternal life. I thought eternal life was about going to my grave and then flying up into the clouds with chubby angels and harps and saying, okay, now I've got everything I've ever wanted. If any Audio Adrenaline fans are here, you know, big, big house with lots and lots of room and you can play football. It's not that. You know, what, what is 
What's eternal life? Is it, you know, I grow these long flowing beards and wearing these beautiful sashes and robes and look like that guy in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade and just getting old forever? That's not eternal life. That's like, that's European paintings or that's movies. That's caricatures. Jesus gives us a definition. And this definition of eternal life is now. Knowing Jesus in the here and now and knowing the one who sent Jesus into space and time for us, that's eternal life. Yes, there is eternal life that happens after death, but we don't have to wait till death to live eternally. We live with an eternal perspective of life if we know Jesus now, and it changes the way we approach our clocks, our schedules, our lives, our deadlines. Knowing Jesus Christ in time and eternity changes everything. We don't drudge through this world and say eternal life is mine someday and I know there will be no more pain, I know there will be no more suffering, I know there will be forgiveness, but really, um, I could care less about this world right now, just take me. Now Jesus is saying, if you're looking forward to eternal life, you have it right here in this meal and I'm about to make a way for you because I'm about to do something that I was sent to this world for. Now, if we're also looking forward towards heaven, which we should, what are we looking forward to? The main thing of heaven is not things. The main thing of heaven is Jesus. Eternal life continues in heaven because Jesus is there. I know uh, there was a book written by Mitch Albom, Five People You Meet in Heaven. Okay, the five people, big Oprah Winfrey author, he wrote uh, Tuesdays with Maury and you know, a couple of these other bestsellers. But the five people you meet in heaven, guess who's not there? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is not in the five people you meet in heaven. It's kind of a, a peripheral or spiritual God and you know, all these other families and relatives. It's a, it's a touching book. It is. Turn it into a movie. But be, be careful of what touches you. Okay? Um, read it. You know, watch the movie. But Jesus is not in his view of heaven, as many of our imaginations sometimes take us there, and we realize, what am I looking forward to in heaven? I'm looking forward to being with Jesus. But you don't have to wait, because he gives that to us, and he gives that to his disciples in this prayer, right now, in time, in eternity. We have an eternal perspective of life. When we look at glory... The word glory is, is a, it's a very churchy word. Okay? Um, it's repeated many times in this passage. Uh, just in verses 1 through 5 alone, it's repeated five times. It's repeated again in verse 10 and three more times through 22 and 24. But when you think of glory, a lot of ideas may come to mind. Glory, glorify. I want to take it kind of out of this churchy jargon for a second. When we think of glory, we're thinking today, hopefully by about 3 or 4 o'clock, glory will be springing up with champagne in a locker room somewhere at AT&T Park. Okay? People will be ex- like excited and you know, not woeful that the Padres have swept the series and taken it to a playoff tomorrow. Okay? We think of glory because there's hopes built into that. There's a celebration that happens. We're thinking of glory in other ways. When Olympics and people, you know, stand on a, 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 you know, gold medal. 
There's glory in there. The silver medalist, hmm, that's nice, but that's, that's gold. Okay. There's glory in, in a newborn, in, in a child coming into the world, a miracle, who, who comes into this world and you just see, wow, there's a smile on this baby. Kissing a child, there's glory in that. But, you know, glory, we think of God bringing it back into, what is it? It's hard to define. We know it's sort of there, but it's hard to define. Well, some of the churchy definitions are, you know, it's bright light, it's splendor, it's majesty, it's beauty, but that doesn't really help too much because, again, more churchy words. Um, John Piper, author, pastor that, that I greatly respect, he gives this pretty succinct definition, but, you know, may or may not help you, but he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Okay, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That may or may not help. So, so what really is glory? I like to define glory in, in simpler terms. And um, again, it comes down to a, a, a definition that, that probably is oversimplified, but it's simple enough that a child can understand it. And I like to think simply of I'm in seminary, so I get all these big terminology uh, terms, but I, I'm simple here. So when, when I see glory... Something comes out of my mouth. When, when I'm in a situation of glory, whether it's human or whether it's divine glory, something comes out of my mouth. And this is, this is the definition I'm going to give to you, okay? Wow! Okay, Can, could you all say that with me? Ready? Wow! But you have to say it with some, mm, okay? It, 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 it's beyond definition. And it's kind of weird because right now you're saying it because I'm asking you to, but you do it too, okay? Ready? Pretend you've just seen the most amazing, glorious event in the whole world. You say, wow. Gets you, right? It gets you. And when you think about glory, there, there's, uh, in Hebrew, there's an idea of weight and depth, a heaviness attached to it. Kavod, that's the word. And there's this, 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 wow, that's deep. Wow, that's heavy. I want us to think, do, do we consider God glorious like that? We think of God su- supremely divine and also near and imminently close. Do we say, wow, his grace, indelible grace that marks us forever. Is that something we Wow, over. Or is that something we're like, hmm, been there, done that. Give me something new that I can wow over. Now, now glory, if glory is wow, um, and we, th- we think of glory reflecting glory, and Jesus is praying here in these verses, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Is he talking about this Wow. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Are these the wowing ideas that we've got in our prayer? Not only does that glory happen between Father and Son, it happens to the believers. If you turn to verses 22 through 24, follow along with me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. God gave you the glory that he gave Jesus, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 
24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my wow, the wow you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Thinking about that, I want to just kind of give us one more illustration here. Be right back. Okay. So I'm going to do something here that you probably do every day, but I'm going to try and see if uh, there's a different reaction. Okay. Okay, uh, pretty standard reaction, pretty standard reaction. Let's try it again, let's try it again, let's try it again. Okay. Try to use what you've just learned. Okay, ready? Wow. Okay. There you go, there you go, there you go. Okay. Um, it, it's reflecting, but... Um, Oftentimes, again, we see it every day, and it's a little dirty. Okay? And every morning, you, you may look, and you may see this, and you're like, hmm, wow. <laughs> or you may say, hmm, keep working on it. In Christ, we don't see our own glory. In Christ, the Father looks upon us. I'm looking at you here, okay? And if we are in Christ, if we know Him, we receive the glory, that all the glory that He gave Jesus. And because of that, we can be wowed. But oftentimes, again, we're very uh, horizontal in the way we approach things. By the flip side of the coin, sometimes we look at our faith I want to glorify God in everything that I do. It's just me and Jesus here. And we're just kind of laid out here. And and it's just a very vertical relationship. But, you know, I don't care about my community outside. It's just me and Jesus. That, That doesn't quite reflect the glory to the world that He has promised us. And so what I'd like to challenge us to do right now is reframe our thinking of this glory to be sort of at a 45 degree angle. And if we're doing it like this, if the world is going to see the glory that the Father has, we've got to be tilted somewhere in between. Because from God, off of us, the world will see His glory. Okay? Somewhere like that. Okay? The sun was bright. And you kind of get it on your face there. There you go. There you go. Okay? Right there. Okay? And so, considering the heaviness, this, this glory that He has given us. Do we seek our own glory? Do we seek God's glory? Or do we seek to make God's glory revealed, reflected to a world that's longing to be wowed? And they are. And we are. We want to be wowed. That's why marketers, advertisements, are constantly pulling tricks out of their hat to wow you. Beer commercials. Old Spice commercials, getting you to click on something that just says, wow, like, share. Wow. But it's such little things that don't matter. We have 
a gospel that matters. Jesus Christ is praying that this glory, the glory that was given to Him by the eternal Father of the universe, would be yours as well. And as you're walking around and as you're working in your day-to-day, that's a reflection of the glory of God. I want that to become your heartbeat. I want that to become something that drives you through time and eternity. There are two verses that are not in the the passage here. I'll just read them for you. Matthew 5.16, early in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these verses, and the first part of the verse may remind you of a children's song, but in that children's song, the last part of the verse is left out. This is what Jesus says. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Remember the song? Remember the song? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, right? But it doesn't go on. That song doesn't finish it. This is what Jesus says in the end of the verse. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why you let your light shine. That's why you do what is right in the midst of everything that's wrong. So that they would see your good works and they, non-believers, people in the world, would give glory, would wow, would be amazed. Give glory to God. The Apostle Peter writes in his epistle, 1 Peter 2.12, he says, live such good lives among the pagans, the non-believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Peter assumes that they're going to be persecuted for doing good. He assumes that in their actions, they will be hated and accused. But there's a good reason. And that reason is do it anyways because they're going to see and they're going to wow at God. It's a good thing. It might not feel very good, but when we live lives that reflect the glory of God, non-believers, non-believers, pagans, will even glorify God. It's a weird thought. I've been encouraged, uh, especially by uh, Winnie, your story of, of recovery. But more than just with recovery, I think it's the attitude with which you've walked through this. Um, and chatting with Hal about it and just seeing that uh, anyone could have just folded their cards and just said, I, I give up. And anyone could have just kind of walked through and said, okay, this life sucks. Screw it. Okay. Harsh words, but you know that's what you feel in the midst of it. And for you, I, I'm really blessed. And I know it's not something you've walked through alone, that this is a church that has come around side you, come alongside you and, and poured into your family at a real severe time of need. And I commend you as a church for doing that. And it's evident. I mean, even through Facebook, the glory of God goes up and says, wow, we're praying for you. Wow, it's good. Make it known so that God gets the glory. It's heavy. It's deep. We'll move to the third point here, oneness. Uh, Right now, I've 
I'm going to encourage you to, to reach to your wallets. We're not taking the offering just right now. But if you can reach into your pocket and grab one of two things. Hopefully you've got some of it. If you don't, it's all right. Either a coin or a dollar bill. Okay, a coin or a dollar bill. Either it's a penny, dollar bill. Just grab one of those right now. I'll give you 10 seconds to do that. And uh, do a quick little examination of it. There are some words in English on there. There are also some words in Latin on there. If you've got a dollar bill on there, it's probably with that eagle and a ribbon. If it's on the penny, it's somewhere, I guess on the new 2010 penny, there's a shield on there, which is really cool. Um, But it could be on the side. Do you see those words? If you're looking at the Latin words, it says... E pluribus unum. Okay, do you see that on that ribbon? If you're looking at the penny, it's on the back, right above the Lincoln Memorial. E pluribus unum. And I want to address this. What, what the founders of this country and, and, and the coinage here, they wanted to imprint this as part of it. E pluribus unum in Latin means out of many, one. Pluribus meaning plural, unum, uno, you know, uh, one. Out of many, this diversity, there was a unity that this country, 50 separate states, or at the time 13 colonies, out of many things, out of a d- diversity of stuff, we want one, one unifying idea, okay? It's built into our, our society, it's built into our country, it's built into the way that we even spend our money because... One penny by itself can't buy you very much anymore. In San Francisco, if you put this in a parking meter, I know you don't have to worry about parking meters here in the East Bay, but in San Francisco, this will not get you a minute of parking. Okay? You put five of these together, it still won't take it. You'd have to put a nickel in because they won't read a penny. Five cents will get you two minutes of parking. Okay? Ten cents, ten equivalents of this, ten cents, and put it in a dime, you'll get four minutes of parking. A quarter will get you ten minutes. It's ridiculous, okay? Ridiculous. But you put a hundred of these together, you get a dollar. Buy you a Kit Kat bar and a vending machine, right? But Mark Zuckerberg got billions of these, okay? Billions of these, billions of these. And you need many of these ones together to build anything, okay? Just like the church, it's not... Solo act. And Jesus is praying that the people here, these disciples, would be one just as he and the Father are one. We think of union, connection, unity, togetherness, teamwork, relationships. It's this e pluribus unum idea. Many different things, but one. Whether it's a focus, a goal, a mission statement, e pluribus unum. So when we bring all these things together, we know that there's degrees to which we can be one with others. Many of you are very close. Many of you are a little further apart from each other. Those of you who are in marriage know that there's a oneness that you have with your spouse that you don't have with your boss at work appropriately. Okay, there's a distance of knowledge that should be there, but there's still some level of oneness So where do we go for an ultimate definition of oneness? The coins? No. Do we go to even the highest form of 
oneness we can know on earth in marriage. I want to go higher than that. I want to go higher than union between a husband and wife, parent, child, worker, employee, neighbors. I want to go to the Trinity. I want to go to the picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The oneness that exists from before the time, before the time began, before the creation of the world, the, the oneness that exists there is carried into the life of Jesus Christ. He knows His Father intimately. And He knows that He's going to send a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to these disciples to empower them throughout the first church, the book of Acts, to just explode this gospel all over the world. There's a oneness that, hap- that, that exists in the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. You ever wonder, uh, I've heard children ask this before, why did God create us? Why did God create us? If He was Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship already, why did He create us? I've heard a a black, um, old, kind of an old black folktale out of uh, old spirituals. And it was this, uh, this story that God created man because he was lonely. And it was his pleasure to create man so that he'd have people to play with. And while I love most black gospel music and black gospel, you know, spirituals, I just, that rubbed me completely wrong. Because God was not lonely. He was not twiddling his thumbs waiting for someone to play with him. He was perfectly in, in oneness, in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. But out of that, He created to reflect oneness in the world. And He asked, I mean, he, he invited Adam and Eve into this relationship. One good way of looking at it is, you have a Father and a Son and the Holy Spirit, and they're just in this love force going on, back and forth. It's just good. All right, just all over the place. And if it's perfect and it's united, it's unbreakable. And you were just to somehow just drop right in the middle of that, you wouldn't change the dynamics of that oneness. You wouldn't like push Jesus out of the way. You just kind of sit in the middle of it and just feel the love trafficking around you. And you would just know that you in the midst of this relationship are loved. Maybe, maybe closer to home. When you have a father and a mother who prioritize one another, husband loving wife, before even, you know, looking at their children and saying, Oh kids, you are our, our, our big hope. Kids, you know, we're gonna love you, do anything that you say so that you can go to this college and get this job and, you know, not that. But a father and mother who are training Pump their children by loving each other first. And the kids just, they feel it. It's just an overflow of love that goes into them. You know, that, that whole thing. It's, it, it's not misdirected. I'm going to take some love from my wife and pour it into my daughter because I'm, I'm limited. On, no. The best thing that, that can happen for that kid is to know that without a doubt, my father loves my mother. And my mother loves my father all the way till death do us part. There's a security there. There's a solid oneness that's unbreakable there. And I know it's a pain 
and, and, it, and it, it hurt in a society that it's not a guarantee. When even the marriage relationship is, is under threat of divorce, of redefinition, that, that security is no longer, uh, it's no longer there. And people wonder, well, who's going to love me then if they can't even love each other? Well, we have to look past the human relationships and look to God. The unbreakable triune Father, Son, and Spirit, God. And we have to go there and dive right into there. He's drawn us in and we have to dwell there to be in oneness with God first. We see the, fa- the Father and the Son here in verses 20 through 26. Listen to these prepositions, the ins, the withs, the us, the you, me, them, those pronouns here. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me, oneness, where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself, I myself may be in them. When there's a oneness There's a knowledge that emerges. My wife and I have been married for three years now. And somebody asked me recently, do you feel like you're still learning things about your wife? Like, have you figured her out yet? I'm like, no, all right. There's so much more to study about Venus. And she's my favorite subject, okay? I've got a lot of subjects, but she's my favorite subject. And I'm always learning something new because there's this, this knowledge that, that goes beyond reading a book, goes beyond studying a formula, plug and play. It's a knowledge that's dynamic constantly. And so I want to give this definition to you, again, remembering that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they have this oneness and they know each other completely, intimately, perfectly. This is oneness. If you want to write this down, oneness is knowing the one who knows you. Knowing the one who knows you. Now, if you back that up and say, okay, well, I know a lot of people. I know about a lot of people. I've got a lot of friends. Do they know you? Do they know you well? Do they know you deeply? And the closer you get to that knowledge, the closer your circle of friends, the closer your circle of oneness. And it's really true. You can't have that many close friends. You can have a lot of acquaintances. It's, it's, it's fine. I can know a lot about Tim Lincecum, but that guy, he does not know me, okay? I can know a lot about, name the celebrity, okay? But if they don't know you, 
there's the distance. But knowing the one who knows you, well, that, that, that's a definition. I want to go deeper than that. Because long before we ever knew God, he knew us. And so if he knew us deepest, and if he searches our hearts and knows everything within us, and still chose to love us, guess what? He wants us to know him. Knowing the one who knows us deepest, namely God, the one who does not turn his face from us, even though he knows every sin in our heart. And he comes and he says, I want to know you and I want you to know me. Be one with me. This is in Jesus' prayer, that you would be one with him. If we're going to find oneness in this world, we're going to need to know the oneness out of this world, the oneness in God. We can never bridge the gap of oneness on our own. It's our sin that divides us. But Jesus Christ bridges that. And he asks us and he invites us to enter in to be one with him, just as he and the Father are one. So we looked at time and eternity. We looked at glory and the wow and the depth of that. We're looking at oneness and we want to tie it all together here, seeing that they're all connected in Jesus. And Jesus is praying this 26-verse prayer at a time at the end of this meal, which may have rung a little differently in the apostles' ears. Scholars will often refer to this as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, in the temple, once a year, the Jewish high priest would go into this holy of holies behind a curtain, and he would do a ceremony and a ritual as a high priest, and he would pray, and he would sacrifice a goat on behalf of the sins of the people. This is called Yom Kippur. Just passed a couple weeks ago. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that would have happened in a temple. But Jesus is doing this around a dining room table, or maybe on the floor with pillows. Okay, They didn't necessarily have tables and chairs back then. It may have been more on rugs and, and, and sitting around in this upper room. But he's praying this high priestly prayer. And to these good Jewish boys, they may have thought, interesting. Why are you praying that way? You're not in a temple. But the word that shows up most in his prayer, the word is cosmos or world. It shows up 17 times in this passage. They're not part of this world. I'm not part of this world. I want you not to take them out of this world, but to leave them in this world, protect them in this world. World, 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 cosmos shows up in this prayer so much. And while he's not preparing a sacrifice of a goat behind a temple so no one can see, what he's doing, he's, he's in the world with his apostles saying, I'm preparing a sacrifice just like a high priest. But guess what? Unlike those other high priests, I'm preparing the sacrifice and I am the sacrifice. No other high priest has ever done that. They've gone to the back of the curtain, prepared the goat for slaughter, slit its throat, poured out the blood, sprinkled it on the horns, and said, your sins are forgiven for this year. Don't do it again, but if you do, we'll do it again next year. Jesus is here, breaking bread, pouring wine, 
praying this prayer and saying, I am greater than any high priest. And I'm preparing a sacrifice that will never need to be done ever again. And I'm going to be on the altar myself on the cross for you. That's different. He didn't leave the world without giving us a way to know Him. Because in the very next chapter, He'd go into the garden, pray, be arrested, and taken through trial to the cross for your sins for mine. Jesus was not from this world. But He came into this world to redeem those who were in it, those who were His own, but those who do not belong to this world, but belong to God. Jesus' prayer would affect change that continues to have a lasting impact even today. He prayed for himself. He prayed for those disciples, but all of us, we were not there. We are part of that last uh, section of prayer where he's praying for those who would believe through the apostles' message. And somebody reached you who was also reached by somebody else, who was reached by somebody else, who the gospel just just couldn't stop. It just kept echoing, reverberating throughout century upon century and century. And you're living in the midst of Jesus' prayer. But guess what? It doesn't stop with you because that message continues to reverberate through your life to someone else, to someone else. Someone else will become a member next week. Someone else will be baptized. Someone else will come to know Jesus for the first time through your life if you are in Christ. So as we wrap this up, some of the questions may, may, may come up. So what? Jesus prayed this prayer. So what do I have to do about it? Is this something I need to memorize like the Lord's Prayer? Because this 26 verses is much longer. Okay, I can do the Our Father. I don't want this to become a formula for us to say, now how do I live it out, my seven steps? If we're looking at time and eternity, simply put, let's look outside of time and into eternity. If we're looking at glory, let's shift, just a slight shift and say, I'm not living for my own glory. I want to live for God's glory. And God's glory is manifest on Jesus and Jesus went to the cross. So it's all of that. If we're going to live in oneness, it doesn't start with my relationships here on earth. It'll echo out to these relationships, but it starts with me being in the center of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's where my oneness begins. And if you're not in that yet, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, He calls you today to come. He calls you to enter in and say, be with me, follow me. I have given my life for you. Receive, trust, obey. 
I love you. We're not trying to live out Jesus' prayer. We're not trying to live out of our own flesh. We're trying to live in, to rest, to be in the prayer that He already prayed. And it's having effect. I want you to be in Jesus. I want you to, to take this message and run with it, knowing that it is finished. It is done. The Gospel is complete. You get to be a part of it. You don't add anything to it. But you get to live it out. Grace has been shown to you. Now just reflect that grace to others. We don't want anybody to force it and try to reflect grace that you don't know, haven't experienced before. It would be impossible. So before the throne of God, as Karen, you played that song earlier as we were meditating, where do you stand? Outside of Jesus' prayer or inside? Inside, locked into time and eternity, worried about the clock, the next alarm, my deadline, or living with an eternal view. If you're, if you're living for temporary glories, what's it going to take to just shift, to reflect the glory of God? Maybe it's being in the Word a little bit more so that the Word is echoing off of your life instead of magazines. Maybe it's listening to edifying truth instead of listening to lies. And in oneness, in community, with a body of believers that is in Jesus, do you reflect the oneness that the Father, the Son, and Spirit give to you today and tomorrow? Would you pray with me? I'm going to ask you, with your eyes closed, to... Turn your face toward heaven. Keep your eyes closed. As Jesus turned His face to heaven. And just as your neck has turned your face towards heaven, it's not a comfortable position. You don't drive like that. You don't watch TV like that. But I challenge us to live like this. God, with our faces turned towards You, Would you reflect the glory that you gave Jesus upon our lives? We know that in the Old Testament we would have been struck dead because we couldn't handle, Moses couldn't handle the sight of even a glimpse of your backside glory. But in Jesus, you cover us with your blood. In Jesus, you give us resurrection power. So with our faces upturned, would you reflect onto our faces, into our lives, all the glory that you promised Jesus? Would you remind us to let go of the things that are deadlines, that bring us death? To stop worrying about those dead lines and to cling to you, the lifeline, Jesus. Would you provide for us the oneness that we've been longing for, looking for in all the wrong places and all the wrong things, to run to be in the center of your relationship with yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
that we may bring that into our families. We may bring that into our workplaces, into our community, because we have been affected by this glorious gospel. Thank you for praying this, Jesus. Thank you for praying a prayer we could never pray. Would you glorify yourself here at Indelible Grace as they continue to grow in you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.